All right, come on in and find a seat, and we will get started. And we'll get started with our series, Anxious for Nothing. You see the graphic on the screen. But before we get into that material, let me quickly make some announcements. Ladies, tomorrow uh, at 7 o'clock, Monday, every second and fourth Monday is Heart to Heart. And so that meets tomorrow. All ladies are invited to that 7 o'clock here at the Ministry Center. We have our midweek program Wednesday, 7 o'clock for the children and teens, 7.15 for the adult classes. Every Friday morning at 9 o'clock for two hours, 9 to 11, is for moms, and that is entrusted. It's, uh, the full name is entrusted with a child's heart, and they go through a workbook of material, have a, a video teaching that goes with that, and then uh, some fellowship, and you get a couple of hours with some child care, fellowship with some other moms, it, and some teaching. So it's all there. Next week, next Sunday, is during the first hour, worship hour, is in its entirety devoted to communion, the observance of the Lord's table. So we'll take a break for that week in our series on the book of Acts to observe communion. Second hour next week, this hour next week, we will begin uh, s multiple classes. Uh, two of those classes are for those considering membership, considering CBC, and the other one is for those who have recently joined. Newcomer's orientation is for those of you that are new and it offers you an opportunity to learn more about our church. I lead that for four weeks. We have a booklet of material that we go through, and in that setting, it offers you an opportunity to ask any questions that you might have. So next week, this hour, uh, those that want to participate in that, you don't have to register anything to show up. We will go out the back door and in across the hallway to classroom number two, and we will have uh, our newcomer's orientation for four weeks. At the same time, we'll be having Membership 101. Pastor Larry leads that, and as I said, that's for those who have joined. Pastor Larry will send those who have joined since the last Membership 101 an invitation to that. At the same time, our young adult ministry, Crossroads, will be having their own class for those four weeks as well. Pastor Larry will be with Membership 101 in Classroom 3. Crossroads will be in Classroom number 1. So Classroom 1, Crossroads number 2 is Newcomer's Orientation, Classroom 3, Membership 101. And then everybody who doesn't fit into one of those three will be here, and we're privileged next week to have with us uh, one of our missionaries. The missionaries we support, Kevin and Sarah Sherman, are going to be here, and they serve in Zambia, Central Africa, and they serve at the Central Africa African Baptist University in Zambia. So you'll enjoy the presentation update from uh, Kevin, but also his uh, teaching during second hour. And then the week after that, for two weeks, on uh, March the 27th and April the 3rd, those two weeks, uh, Billy Cochran is going to teach. Bill, most of you know Billy, and Billy's in our pastors and training program, so he's going to be leading the uh, teaching for those two weeks. That fourth and final week on April the 10th, Pastor Rich is going to teach. And then April the 17th is Easter, and on Easter, we're not having two hours, we just have the one hour, it'll be at 10.30 for our Easter worship service. The week after that, April the 24th, we will start a new series in here, everybody in here, send mailers out to the, uh, to the city of Trenton, like we do for these Discovering God series, and this one's going to be on resolving conflict. So that's what's, uh, that's what's coming up over the next uh, several weeks. Today is the last lesson, last session in Anxious for Nothing. And I had some people 
tell me that thinking about the fact that this is the last lesson on anxiety made them anxious this, this week. <laughs> Actually, I had a couple people tell me that. So clearly nothing I've said has gotten through to, to, to anyone. Now, I've promised that we have notes. I have notes for this stuff that I've been going through. And those of you that would like a, a copy of the notes will be happy to get that to you. And uh, we'll email that to you. But any of you who want a, a hard copy, we can make a hard copy for you as well. But I just need you to let me know that by emailing me. If you have my email address, then shoot me a note and say, I, I want a copy of the notes. Uh, if you don't have my email address, it's kb, my initials, at cbctrenton.com, kb at cbctrenton.com. Or just see me afterwards. I've got a pocket full of my business cards. I'll give you a business card, and it has my email address on, on that. So email me this week, and we'll uh, get you a digital copy. And if you'd like a printed copy, we'll be happy to prepare that for you for pickup next week as well. So what do we do about anxiety? And that's what we've been looking at now for these last few weeks, having looked at foundational topics with regard to anxiety and why some people are more anxious than others. What do we do about it? And we've seen that we do a couple of things. Uh, the first is that we pray with gratitude. And we get this from Philippians chapter 4, the passage in Scripture where this phrase, anxious for nothing, comes. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul, who wrote Philippians, says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything uh, 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 bring your request to God, and to do so with thanksgiving, with gratitude. So you bring your petitions, present your petitions, your requests, your burdens to God, but do so with gratitude. And we talked about the, the need then to cultivate a thankful mindset and a thankful heart and talked about some of the many, many myriad of things for which we can be thankful. And the result of that, according to that passage then, is if we do that, then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what do we do? First thing we do is we pray, we pray with gratitude. But then last week, we looked, started to look at the second thing that we must do in order for us to, according to Philippians 4, uh, get a handle on our anxiety, and that is to think well, to think well. So in this final session, we're going to talk about that at some length, thinking well. Biblical Christianity is a religion of the mind. Think about it. It's a revealed religion. God has revealed, revealed that is made known. That's what reveal means. God has made known. He has made known, revealed Himself. He has made known, revealed His truth about His purpose for His world and our place in it and who we are and what's gone wrong with God's world. He has made known things about His universe that we would otherwise have no way to know with regard to activity in the spirit realm angelic beings, those kinds of things. God has made all of those things known. He's revealed them, and He's put them in a book. So Christianity is a revealed religion, and the revelation is found in a book that you read and you process mentally. And that's why I say then that biblical Christianity is a religion of the mind. It's a revealed religion, and that revelation comes in the form of propositional truth in, in a book. 
And this ability to do that, to process these propositions, these truths that God has made known, is something that all human beings have because we're all made in the image of God. The ability to receive revelation is part of God's image in us. So, you read in the opening chapter of the Bible, the very first chapter, you have God creating on the six days of creation, and you'll remember that cadence that you have where it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and the evening and the morning were. And then that cadence just keeps going, and God said, commanded something, that something happened, and the evening and the morning, and it just keeps going. It's just, and God's saying, and it happens. But then you get to verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis, opening chapter of the Bible, and it's talking about the creation, you know, not of the moon and the stars and the vegetation and all of that. It talks about the creation of God's highest creature, humanity, the only one of all of God's creation made in His image. Verses 26 to 28 make much of that. And when you come to verse 28, it says, not just, and God said, let there be, it says, and God said to them. It's the first time in the chapter, not that God speaks, but that God speaks to a creature. And God said to them. And they know how to receive it. And they don't have to take any classes. They know the voice of God. They were made to know the voice of God. We were made to know the voice of God. And we know how to talk to God. Adam is able to converse with God. So he's made with this ability, this mental ability, to receive revelation and to communicate with fellow image bearers, but most importantly, to communicate to God, receive from God, and speak to God. And as a result of this, we don't have to teach our children to communicate. Unless there's a, unless there's a problem, a speech impediment or something like that, we have a couple of speech pathologists in our church, and I'm thankful for the folks and the work they do with that. But if you don't have that, naturally, all things being equal, then children just know how to talk, and they just start talking. And they say, mama and dada and mine. Those, that's the way it goes, mama, dada, mine. So you've got that. You've got that fearfully and wonderfully made part, that cute part, mama and dada, and then the sin nature comes, the selfish part, saying mine. Okay? And it's game on pretty quickly with, uh, with your kids. But you don't, have to, you don't have to teach them all things being equal to do that because it's part of the image of God. That's why that. You have passages in your Bible like Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. But how are you transformed? By the renewing of your mind. It's the reason that you have passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, that we demolish strongholds and we seek to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, every thought into captivity. So the Bible is making much of the mind, but here's the problem. Mysticism is the bane of biblical Christianity. Mysticism. What is that? Mysticism teaches that God communicates with individuals 
apart from the mind. That God bypasses the mind. That God as a spiritual being communicates directly with you as a spiritual being, his spirit, him, him as spirit to your spirit. And there's a disconnect between the spiritual part of you and your thinking capacity in mysticism. Mysticism bypasses the mind. And as a result of that, instead of then being thinking-oriented, it's feeling-oriented. It's amazing how many Christian people who are members of and attend Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, and Bible-preaching churches still practice in their Christian lives mysticism. I mean, you come, you know, you come today for heaven's sake. <laughs> in the first hour, and you open a book, the book, and we go through 68 verses. And you do your best to stay awake through the whole thing, having lost that hour of sleep. And week after week, you open a book and you say, look and see what it says. But then Monday through Saturday, too many of us actually practice our Christianity in a feeling rather than thinking-oriented way. We are confessionally biblical, but we are functionally mystic, many of us. And the problem with mysticism is myriad, I mean, one... It causes people not to then focus the mind upon the revealed truth of God. And so we miss so much of what God has said and fail to appropriate what God has said for our lives. But another problem is that when mystics decide something, however you know, they go about it, normally feeling-oriented, they've just got a spiritual hunch that this is right. God's Spirit is communicating to their spirit. They feel led they have a peace about it. These are all, this is all the language of the mystic. You say, wait a minute, I say that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of stuff that floats around in Christianity. And as a, result, as a result of that, once a decision is made by a mystic, it's unfalsifiable. See, the great thing about having a book is that it's an objective standard mysticism is by its very nature subjective completely it's however you feel about it it's however you believe your spirit has received the message from god and once you've done that then you make your decision based upon that and if somebody comes to you and says you know i don't think i don't think that's a wise thing for you to do well how god told me god gave me this impression I'm, I'm sure that this is what God wants me to do because I feel it. It's unfalsifiable. And people apply it to decision-making all the time. And that's why you need to read the book that we have in our resource center called Decision-Making in the Will of God. And it's about that thick. And it's, but it's a book. And then you process. And it's propositions. And if you're inclined to be more feeling-oriented and mystical, you'll say, I hate books, but learn to love books. God gave you a book to read because the Christian, Christianity is the life of the mind. So this mystical idea has all kinds of issues associated with it. It bypasses the mind, and so it is 
feeling-oriented and it's unfalsifiable and it causes people to make decisions on faulty bases and it masquerades as authenticity. People think that, that mysticism is authentic, whereas thinking about your Christianity is somehow inauthentic. Because, see, the Spirit needs to just move upon you. You don't have to think about it. You shouldn't have to think about it. The Spirit should just be able to prompt you. And the more you have to think about it, the less spiritual you are. So I grew up, you all know, Pentecostal. I think I said this in a sermon a few weeks ago, that we were so mystical. This goes with being Pentecostal, okay? The bypassing of the mind thing. And we were so mystical that to have an order of service was considered unspiritual because you're quenching the move of the Spirit. Now, you all you know, would say, well, that's dumb. I'm glad we have an order of service. I'm glad you, Pastor, know when your time is up. All of that stuff. I'm glad we have that. But we do have, even in our non-charismatic, non-Pentecostal evangelical circles, we do have our own versions of that, that mysticism is authenticity. Because we think worshiping God, for example, is a matter of God hitting us in the moment. And very often that's bypassing the mind for a lot of people. In fact, worship leaders, I, uh, I, I used it myself, I try not to do that. See, the music people are not the worship leaders. Did you know that? The music leaders do the music. And our music people do a great job. And by the way, Anthony has not left us. He hasn't been here the last few weeks, but he was sick. He practiced this past Wednesday. He was going to be, he rehearsed, and he was sick today. So Phil has done a great job filling in, and Lord willing, Anthony will be able to be back next week. But those guys, you know, they all do a great job. And I admire and I'm thankful for what they do. But I don't use worship leader to refer to Anthony. He's the music leader, and here's why. Music is part of our worship. Worship's bigger than music. Music's an important part of worship. But it's a part of worship. The preaching is part of the worship, too. The praying is part of the worship. The giving is part of the worship as well. But we, we think that, that the music is the worship, one, and very often worship leaders are taught. How do I know this? I've gone to some of these seminars. I've spied on what they're teaching. <laughs> and, and, they, and they teach the, what they call the worship leaders to create, the, to create the mood, to play the music in a way that does that. Whereas the proper way to do it, and so then when people respond, now very often, what are they responding to? They're responding to the music mood that you created. Again, going back to my Pentecostal background, we had, back before it was cool, back in the 70s, drums, electric guitars, I mean, our we just, you know, whatever could get you going, we got it going, tambourines, you name it. And so when the band got going, the crowd got going. And in my Pentecostal church, when the crowd got going, it could be a safety hazard. There was running the aisles, there was slain in the spirit, there was all kinds of things that happened. And people would be going, and the band is going, and the band would keep playing, and you know, the, the, the songs are supposed to have four verses, but they would go for 40, and they would just keep going. 
but I, I noticed as a teenager at some point, it occurred to me, and, and everybody would say this, the Spirit is really moving. The Spirit is moving. But I noticed something. The Spirit apparently has rhythm. Because when the music stopped, the Spirit stopped. So what's actually going on here? And you have people who are taught to do that. And that then is more authentic, the fact that you don't have to think about it. The fact that you don't play in such a way that you have to think about the words so that they then impact you, and they may impact you emotionally, and oftentimes should, but they do that because you thought about them. But that is, for many, deemed to be inauthentic, that you have to think about it. You should just be so spiritually attuned that you're able to be swept up into the worship. And I beg to differ based upon what the Bible teaches about this in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 is part of a three-chapter sequence where the Apostle Paul is talking about the, the, the work of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, including speaking in tongues and prophecy, and many of you are familiar with that. And when you come to chapter 14, you have a very long chapter of 40 verses that deals with specifically speaking in tongues. But right along around verse 9 and 10, Paul says something that I believe directly debunks the notion of mysticism. Because he says, I will sing with the Spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. He says that. Do you know why he's saying that to these people? Because they're mystics. Because they think the Spirit bypasses the mind. But he says, no, I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing, the King James says, with the understanding also, with my mind also. And then he says, I will pray with the Spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. That the mind, the thinking, is not contrary to the Spirit. Further, as Paul talks about what should go on in the local church, in that case the church at Corinth, and how it should be ordered later in that chapter, and he says, when you stand up to speak, you can control this process. You can have one person talk at a time and two, but at most three should, should engage, but do it orderly. But if you're a mystic and you say, hey, the Spirit just hits me, and when the Spirit hits me, I need to respond, and if I don't respond, that's inauthentic. If you say that, then how's Paul going to tell you, wait your turn? But that's what he does. He says, wait your turn. Well, it's because he, he doesn't believe that the Spirit just grabs you and you can't control it. And as a matter of fact, in verse 32... Of 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 32, Paul says this The spirit of the prophets is under the control of the prophets. The spirit of the prophets is under the control of the prophets. He's saying if you're a prophet, you don't just get a message and have to stand up and spout off. You can wait your turn. Why? Because the spirit is a spirit of order. God is a God of order. In fact, he says that in the next few verses. 
and the spirit of the prophet is under the control of the prophet. God's not going to cause you to lose control. So a lot of what passes as authentic Christianity and authentic worship and all of that is based upon this mystical idea. And mysticism is a bane to biblical Christianity. If you're going to get a handle, if you're going to grow in your Christian life, then you need to cultivate the life of the mind, one. And if you're going to get a handle on your anxiety, then it's going to require your thinking. The ability to think clearly and correctly is a tremendous blessing from God. It begins by, at conversion with the gospel. The Lord uses the gospel to illumine the mind of the unconverted. In fact, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing about Christ. Salvation begins in the mind, and an individual comes to realize the seriousness of sin and Christ's atoning work on his or her behalf. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all of your mind. And salvation requires an intelligent response, trust in the revealed truth of God, which proves itself in life to be true and reasonable. Recall that Jesus said in his most extensive passage in the Bible about anxiety and worry in Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, he said, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? The famous British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones commented on this verse. He said this, faith, according to our Lord's teaching, is primarily thinking. We must spend more time in studying our Lord's lessons in observation and deduction. The Bible is full of logic, and we must never think of faith as something purely mystical. We do not just sit down in an armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us. That is not Christian faith. Christian faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds, think about them, and draw your deductions. Look at the grass, look at the lilies of the field, consider them. Faith, if you like, can be defined like this. It's a man insisting upon thinking when everything seems determined to bludgeon and knock him down. The trouble with the person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else. And he goes round and round in circles. That is the essence of worry. That is not thought. That's the absence of thought, a failure to think. Some people assume worry is the result of too much thinking. I've said in weeks past in this series that the person who has a quick mind and a capacity to take in a lot of information is particularly susceptible to being debilitated by, by anxiety. But the problem is not too much thinking. Actually, it's the result of too little thinking, hear this, in the right direction. If you know who God is and understand His purposes, His promises, and His plans, it will help you not to worry. Faith is not psychological self-hypnosis or wishful thinking, but a reasoned response to revealed truth. When we in faith embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, our minds are transformed. The Holy Spirit is at work in us, renewing us, and we receive a new mind or way of thinking. Divine or supernatural thoughts inject our human thought patterns. So the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. But for believers, what has been received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so we may understand what God has freely given us. In other words, because the Holy Spirit indwells us, the very thoughts of God are available to us, but in His Word, because of the next verse, it says this, that is we, Paul and the other apostles, speak 
not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words, and those Spirit-taught words were written down, and you have a copy of the book. Since we all live in a fallen world, though, our renewed minds need ongoing cleansing and refreshment. Jesus said the chief agent for purifying our thinking is His Word. The Bible speaks of that concept many times. Romans 12, 2 that I mentioned earlier, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4, 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Colossians 3, 10, put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. The New Testament calls us to the mental discipline of right thinking. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Peter said, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Think how often Paul said in his letters this phrase, I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers. Ignorant, not a failure to know. I don't want you to be without knowledge. And so let me, let me tell you. He says that in Romans 11, 25, 1 Corinthians 10, 1, 2 Corinthians 1, 8, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. Or he says, and don't you know, a number of times. So this idea that we shouldn't be without knowledge and we need to know, he was concerned that we think rightly. Jesus himself often used the term translated think to help his listeners have a right focus. So what do we think about? We need to think. We're not mystics. What do we think about? Back to our passage in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, right, pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. So let me bounce through those. Truthful things. We find what's true in God's Word. Jesus said, the night before He was crucified, He's praying to the Father in John 17, and verse 17, and He says, sanctify them, that is my followers, Father, sanctify them by Your truth, Your Word is truth. So if you're going to think about truthful things, then you think about the Word of God, Your Word is truth. Noble things, the Greek word that's translated noble refers to what's honorable, dignified, worthy of respect. We're to dwell on whatever is worthy of awe and adoration, the sacred as opposed to the profane. The profane. You know, we, we talk about profanity, but profane just means every day. And, and we're not to just think about the everyday stuff. We've got our everyday duties. We all have to do all of that. But we're to be people who can think in transcendent ways that are above that, things that are more important than that. Noble things, righteous things. The term right speaks of righteousness. Our thoughts are to be in harmony with the divine standard of our holy God as given in Scripture. Right thinking is always consistent with God's absolute holiness. So truthful things, noble things, righteous things, pure things. It refers to morally clean and undefiled things to think about. We're to dwell on what's clean, not what is soiled. Gracious 
things or lovely. The Greek term translated lovely occurs only in this verse in Philippians 4.8 in the entire New Testament, and it means pleasing and amiable. The implication is we're to focus on whatever is kind and, and gracious. So as I just bounce through these, you just think about your thinking. And I think about my thinking. How does it measure up? Like the kind and gracious piece when you're in your car. And there could be a road rage incident involving you at any moment. And even if you wouldn't quite go that far, you're just thinking, you know, the stuff that goes through our minds, right? Praiseworthy things. We already had noble, which refers to honorable, dignified, worthy of respect. But noble predominantly refers to something worthy of veneration by believers. This one, admirable or praiseworthy, refers more to what's reputable in the world at large. It includes universally praised virtues like courage and respect for others. So in essence, as Paul gives this list in Philippians 4.8, he's saying, since there are so many excellent and worthy things out there, focus on them. Focusing on godly virtues will affect what you decide to see. So if you decide to like, obey the Bible and say, okay, I'm going to think about that, then it means you're going to make a decision, not a mystical decision, a conscious decision. And you're going to say, there are certain things that I shouldn't watch. There are things that I need to put away. I grew up in my Pentecostal church. It was, a, it was what was called a Pentecostal holiness church. Came out of historically what's called the holiness movement. And the holiness movement was about, as the name suggests, being holy, living, living holy lives. Unfortunately, it degenerated into a lot of lists of legalistic rules. So the church I grew up in, my Pentecostal church, women could not wear slacks, always dresses and skirts. And that was a rule. And if you were going to be holy, that's what women did. And the women could uh, not cut their hair either. That was part of being holy. So you got all these rules. Unfortunately, it degenerated and all that. The good side was they, were, they understood that the Bible takes this holiness idea seriously. And that if you, are, if you are going to be holy, that is, the word means set apart, different, then it means you can't take in everything that the unholy world is offering you. So you have to make choices about that. And I would just say to you, brothers and sisters, to consider the things that you, you watch, consider the things that you read, consider the movies that you take in. When I was a kid, we just didn't, we didn't watch movies. One, you know, you didn't, I mean, I'm old, one. We didn't have cable. We didn't have a lot of movies. You had the three channels, and then if you had UHF, you could get Channel 50 with the rabbit ears and let him that hath ears hear. And, and so, you know, you only had a few channels, and so there wasn't a lot of movies, and there wasn't much, you know, going to the theater or any of that. Uh, some, when I was a teenager, uh, I'll let Pastor Rich tell you about that, and, uh, but that's just not what we grew up with. But we live in a day today where there's just, I mean, I don't know how many channels you can get, how many streaming services you can get, just movies all the time, and it is so pervasive 
that people assume that when every new movie comes out, it's just a matter of when, not if, you're going to see it. So we say things like, have you seen yet? We always say yet. And the yet means, I know you're going to see it. It's just if you had an opportunity. And my response is generally, was it on C-SPAN? If it wasn't on C-SPAN, I probably, did, I probably didn't see it. But seriously, we have to decide, what am I going to take in? And that's a spiritual decision for all of us. So how does all of this lofty teaching then from Philippians 4.8, how does that apply to fear and anxiety? Jay Adams, the late Jay Adams, who founded the biblical counseling movement single-handedly in 1970 with his book, Competent to Counsel, says this, whatever you catch your mind, whenever you catch your mind wandering back into the formidable territory, and you can be sure that it will, more frequently at first, until you retrain and discipline it. But whenever you catch your mind wandering back into the forbidden territory, change the direction of your thought. Do not allow yourself one conscious moment of such thought. Instead, crisply ask God to help you to refocus upon those things that fit into Paul's list recorded in Philippians 4, 8, and 9. The attitude must grow within you that says, so if I have a fear experience, so what? It's unpleasant, it's disturbing, but God has always brought me through it before. When you honestly can think this way without becoming anxious, you will know that the change has been made. Now, getting from here to there. You've got to get rid of some of the junk that you're allowing into your mind, one some of the news sources that make you fearful unnecessarily, uh, for one. And also, this is what I recommend to people in counseling. If they've had, for example, some kind of traumatic experience and they can't get it out of their head, they can't get it out of their mind, it keeps coming to mind, I suggest that you think of your mind like a TV channel selector. And I recommend this if you watch TV. I recommend, you know how you got the previous channel or the last channel? Then whatever it is you're watching, then when it goes to a commercial and the commercial is something you shouldn't be seeing, then have a preset to your previous channel or your last channel so that you can just hit it and go there until that's over and then you can hit it again and go back. So if you're watching a basketball game and then the beer commercials come on or, you know, the scantily clad woman comes on or whatever it is, then you can hit the channel and you've got it already preset. And think of your mind that way. Have presets that are your go-to places so that you don't have to think about it in the moment. When the anxiety, when the fear begins, now you hit the preset. I'm going to Philippians 4.8. I'm going to think about the blessings that I have in the Lord Jesus. I'm going to think about who I am in Christ. I'm going to think about the day that I came to salvation. I'm going to think about the many blessings that God has brought into my life through my family, through His provisions for me. The list is endless. But you've got presets that you go to. And then practice what's been preached. All this godly lead, uh, thinking is to lead to a practical end. Paul put it this way in Philippians 4, 9, the next verse. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. 
that speaks of action that's repetitious or continuous. When we say someone's practicing the violin or something else, we mean that person's working to improve a skill. When we say a doctor or lawyer has a practice, we're referring to his or her professional routine. The word here refers to one's pattern of life or conduct. And so you keep doing the right things, setting new patterns of thought. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Outliers some years ago. And in that book, he studied all kinds of wildly successful people. But he discovered that almost without exception, those people worked and worked and worked and practiced and practiced and practiced. And to get really good at some skill, he said you have to have 10,000 repetitions. I think that was his number, 10,000 repetitions. Now, I don't know what the number is here. I just know that it is. it involves repetition. It involves work of establishing new habits and continually and repetitiously doing those. God's Word cultivates the godly attitudes, thoughts, and actions that will keep trials and temptations from overwhelming us. To understand that relationship between those three, the attitudes, the thoughts, and actions, consider this analogy. If a police officer sees someone who's about to violate the law, the officer will restrain that person. So that's the action. The officer takes action. But similarly, godly attitudes and thoughts produced by the Word act as police officers to restrain the flesh before it commits a crime against the standard of God's Word. But if you aren't on duty, they can't restrain the flesh, and the flesh is free to violate the law of God. Right attitudes and thoughts always precede right practices. By avoiding anxiety through prayer and making other such attitude adjustments, we do what I mentioned earlier, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And pure behavior, in turn, produces spiritual peace and stability. The prophet Isaiah said, The work of the righteous will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence forever. James wrote in the New Testament, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Paul said, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. He exemplified the spiritual fruit of peace, of joy, humility, faith, and gratitude. He dwelled on those things in verse 8 that he gave us, the true, the noble, the right, the pure, the lovely, the admirable. And so he wasn't embarrassed to tell people who knew him well to practice what they had seen in his life. Now today we have the New Testament pattern for our conduct, but that doesn't mean that those who currently preach, teach, and represent the New Testament are permitted to live any way that we want. Even though none of us are apostles, our lives are to be worthy of imitation or we disqualify ourselves from ministry. In addition, as believers, we're to all prove ourselves to be what James in chapter 1 called doers of the word and not hearers only. Never expose yourself to the ministry of someone whose lifestyle you can't respect. Finally, the God of peace will be with you, Paul says. And he ended on this note because he's addressing an issue of spiritual stability in the midst of the difficulties of a fallen world. It takes, takes us full circle to where we started in Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, he says. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus Verse 7, and now he ends with that same idea. 
that you're going to have the peace of God if you think according to God's patterns. There's no better protection from worry than that. Prayer with thanksgiving and thinking God's thoughts after him as given in his revealed book. All right, if you want a copy of the notes, let me know, kb at cbctrenton.com. If you need my business card, I've got some. And as we end, I was told last week that there's a song, there's an old song about anxiety. What's it called, Ron? All Your Anxiety. And some of you guys know that the song, All Your Anxiety, All of Your Care, All Your Anxiety, All Your Care. So I, many of us don't know it. You know it? Okay. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to be dismissed in prayer, but before we're dismissed in prayer, we're going to stand, and Ron is going to sing the song. And if you know the song, sing it with him. But if you don't, it's okay, because I love hearing Ron sing. So let's stand, and Ron, do a verse of that, and then I'll pray and dismiss us, okay? Song first. All right. I think I heard four voices. So we've got a quartet. Ron, Liz, Kim, Nadine. Was it Nadine over here? Oh, was it Beth? Oh, she's pointing at her daughter. She's throwing her daughter under the bus. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Ron. Thank you very much. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the blessings now of this day. Thank you for letting us gather. Thank you for allowing us to praise you in song. Thank you for allowing us to open your book and to be taught and to apply. Thank you for this hour and this issue of worry and anxiety. Father, thank you for being a, a true father to us as your children and caring for us enough as you know the difficulties that we face in a fallen world and the temptations that all of us deal with. Thank you for instructing us on how it is that we are to respond and to cultivate hearts and minds that please you. Help us this afternoon, this week, to put these things into practice. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.